University of Washington Bothell professor Dan Berger examines the U.S. prison system in the late 20th century and the politics behind it. He traces how mass incarceration arose in response to the unexpected ways prisoners joined in the civil rights and black power movements of the 1960s and 70s. He also describes the role of activist prisoners, such as George Jackson, whose prison letters were published and shed light on the problems with the justice system. His class is about an hour and ten minutes. Um, Okay, great. Let's get started. Uh, I I want to pick up on the conversation that we were having last time about uh, civil rights and and black power movements and the kind of second uh, period of second reconstruction, right? And I want to think about that in relation to uh, what now is called mass incarceration. Right? And we're going to do th- three big things today. Right? We're going to um, talk about what mass incarceration is. Right? What do we mean mean by the term? Right? And, and as we do that, I actually, I'm going to um, complicate some of the ways that it's often talked about right, when people talk about it today. Okay? We're going to talk about where it came from, right? so how, how we ended up with, uh, with the world's biggest prison system. Right? In particular, what that has to do with this time period of uh, the 1960s and 70s and, uh, and, the, and the Second Reconstruction. Right? And the third thing is we're going to think about the role that uh, people in prison and formerly incarcerated people have played right? Consistently, as kind of analysts, observers, and critics of mass incarceration. Okay. So, as we do that, we're going to kind of start off big, and we're going to work our way uh, to, to sort of see it at the at the human level. All right. So, okay. The the U.S. right incarcerates more people than anyone else in the world. Right. Both in terms of absolute numbers, right, more than 2.2 million people in prison, um, but also the rate of incarceration, right? So we have 5% of the world's population in the U.S. and about 25% of the world's prison population, right? And you see here how, how, uh, how much more that is, right, than even uh, other countries that have their own versions of mass incarceration, right? So it's about 700 people per, um, per 100,000 people in the U.S. that are incarcerated today. That's a relatively recent phenomenon. When we look at, when we sort of chart incarceration throughout the 20th century in the U.S., there are these moments of kind of small small peaks, but it's a relatively consistent rate until we get, right, until about 1973. And in 1973, it goes up and it keeps going up. Until we get uh, <clears throat> until we get at its height, right? More than 2.3 million people uh, in prison, right? With with a kind of small dip now, um, but uh, but but not uh, not yet, right? The kind of significance that we, that we can say mass incarceration is is over by any means. Okay? In addition to the number of people that are in prison, right? There's also a larger number that are under some form of correctional control. Right? So the more than 2.2 million people incarcerated, but more than 7 million people that are on you know, parole, probation, that are kind of regularly in contact with the criminal justice system. Right? Again, all of this is really built in the last you know, 50 years. So the, the size of it is 
uh, is staggering on its own, right? But we also want to think about it in terms of the severity, right? Because mass incarceration as a, as a phrase, as a concept, makes it seem like it's just the numbers of people. But actually, what I want to argue today is that part of where mass incarceration starts is that things get worse, right? That the severity of how we treat people who are incarcerated is actually an important contribution to growing the system itself, right? So when we think about, right, or when we look at who is incarcerated, right, and, you know, I had that figure earlier, right, it was 700 people per 100,000, but it's not any 700 people, right? This is, this is a system that is predicated, on, you know, or, or concentrated, I should say, right, by class, race, and place, right? So when we look at who is incarcerated, right, it's about one in 100 Americans in general, right? but it's one in 15 African-Americans over the age of 18, right? And one in nine African-American men, I should say, um, over the age of 18, and one in nine African-American men between the ages of 20 and 34, right? So in the kind of prime years of, uh, of their lives, right? The prison system has always been dramatically, disproportionately men, but the numbers or the rates are still very staggering uh, when we look at incarcerated women as well, right? As we see here, right? That black women are incarcerated at a dramatically higher rate than uh, than white women, right? So, so, so that's part part of the system, right? The size of it, the severity of it, and the severity is a very concentrated one. Okay. So, the the issue of the kind of severity. Is, comes up in a range of ways, right? The U.S. is the only industrialized country to still have the death penalty, right? And even though a number of states, including our own, have placed uh, sort of moratoriums on, on the death penalty, uh, it persists in, in much of the country, right? And I think as worrisome, right, is, is what scholars and activists are starting to call the other death penalty, because right? this is another area in which the U.S. is distinctive, which is the, um, the use of life without parole sentences. Okay, there we go, right? <laughs> and, uh, and sentencing people, right, to sort of spend the rest of their lives in prison has been something that's actually been on the rise as the use of the death penalty has been uh, on the decline. Right? Life without parole uh, is really, you know, something that, that's distinctive in the U.S., right? In an, on its own, but it's even more distinctive because the U.S. is one of the only places in the world to send juveniles, uh, to sentence juveniles to serve life without parole as well, right? So that means you could be arrested for something, uh, you know, 16, 17, even 13 years old, right, and spend the rest of your life uh, in prison. That's changing because of some recent uh, Supreme Court rulings, right? So that means that people in the future won't get that sentence, but we still have right, hundreds of people that are uh, that are serving time under that sentence, right? And Washington State actually just released someone uh, who was the youngest person, right? He was 13 years old when he uh, when he was sentenced to life without parole in prison, right? So this is this is a kind of major issue that that is going to take a long time to uh, to, to repair. Right? The other kind of harshness, right, of the U.S. system. And, and again, something that is really distinctive in how widespread it is here is the use of solitary confinement. Right? So this is you know, an example of, of uh, one of many possible examples of what a, a cell in solitary confinement looks like. Right? This is one of the most extreme um, prisons in the country called Pelican Bay, which we'll talk more about at the end right, in California. 
But in general, solitary confinement, it, you know, there's about 80 to 100,000 people on any given day who are living in conditions like this, right? Windowless cells where they are alone for 23 or 24 hours a day, right? Without access to any sort of, you know, programming, activities, sometimes even without access to, you know, uh, a hat or a calendar, right? This is something that has really, uh, as, as we'll see, right, expanded uh, as kind of the basis for, for mass incarceration. Okay. So um, the, the severity and the scope of, uh, of the prison system is not just people that are incarcerated themselves. Right? Remember we started with uh, the discussion of you know, all the, the number of people that are on parole or probation, right? But it's also the kind of disenfranchisement that comes from having a, a criminal conviction, right? Especially a felony conviction. So there's about 6 million people that are disenfranchised as a result of their conviction status, right? This is incredibly important, uh, especially now as we're in an election year, right? And all the conversation about, you know, which candidate is going to win, and right, we have this kind of horse race sort of coverage about elections, right? We have to remember what sort of, there's a certain kind of artificial, uh, artificialness, right, to those conversations when you take into account the number of, you know, voting age people who would, who would participate but are prohibited from doing so. Right? And that disenfranchisement extends beyond just the, uh, the ballot box, right, to include people that, that can't access public housing, that can't get federal student loans or grants, right? And so the disenfranchisement from having a conviction becomes a kind of permanent, um, you know, a permanent kind of badge, right, that follows you through other parts of your life. And the, the effect of that, right, is really borne out by whole communities, right? So the number of children with an incarcerated parent um, has also dramatically risen, Right? And you know, we think about the the emotional stress, but also also the financial stress that comes from uh, not having access to right, your parents who might otherwise be be involved in your life. Right. So the the effects of mass incarceration really become a kind of um, you know borne out by by whole communities. Right? Okay. So that's that's the you know the bleak, gloomy <laughs> reality that, that, that we sort of currently inhabit with mass incarceration. The question then becomes, where, where did it come from, right? Now, there's three, there's three kind of popular uh, reasons that people give for where mass incarceration came from that I want to dispel, right? You can think of these as sort of myths of mass incarceration, right? And the first one is the myth of crime, right? In some, in some ways, right, it might, might, might make sense. Well, if the U.S. has more people in prison, then we must just have more crime happening here. Right? But in fact, this is a, a myth in, in a couple of ways. Right? Now, it is true that, um, that crime did rise in the 1960s. Right? But, but it's been steadily declining over the last you know, 25 or so years right, as the incarceration rate has continued. And part of what you know, range of you know, criminologists, political scientists, and others have shown is that crime is actually relatively autonomous from punishment, right? Which is to say, people you know may commit offenses, right? But the process of of punishment is something that a society uh, tells about itself, 
right? Punishment is how a society makes its own priorities, right? To decide what to, you know, what a crime is, right? What to punish and how to punish it. Right? And that process is relatively uh, distinct from from the actual range of offenses that occur. So when we look at the incarceration rate and compare it to the crime rate, we see this kind of dramatic continuous rise amidst a kind of checkered uh, rate of crime that then falls decisively. Here's a chart that I think shows it even more more starkly. So, So we can kind of let go of this idea, right, that, we, that mass incarceration comes because the U.S. is sort of gripped by crime, right, suddenly and more, and more pervasively than anywhere else in the world. Okay, so if that's not it, what else is it? Well, one, one idea that some people suggest is that it's about profit, right, that the reason why we have mass incarceration is because people are making money off of it, right? And, sorry, there we go. Technology, uh, <laughs> um, right? Now it is true that uh, that there are people who do make money off of uh, of prisons. Right? The ways that this this often comes up in conversations is that people think about private prisons, right? And that you have you know private prisons like Geo Group or Correction uh, Corporation of America, and that's why we have the prison system that we do. Right? Well, this in fact is uh, is a myth as well, right? Private prisons are less than 10% of the overall prison population, right? The, their profitability is always kind of in question, right? The one exception to this is in the realm of uh, immigrant detention, right? Where detention centers are, you know, about 50% of them uh, are, are privately run, right, by, the, by those corporations. But when we think about prisons, right, it's not about profit, Right? And in fact, the, the, the profit that people are making off of prisons is you know, the phone calls that prisoners make to their families or the food that they you know, purchase, um, the, the fees and fines that they incur as a result of their offense. Right? There is a lot of sort of money being made, but that's not why people go to prison. Right? That actually came afterwards, right? as people were starting to see the incarceration rate rise so dramatically, some people saw a chance to make, to make a lot of money off of it. But it wasn't like, uh, but but that wasn't the sort of driving force that sent people to prison, right? The ways that you know convict leasing did, right? In the late 1800s that we talked about earlier. Okay, so it's not crime, it's not profit. Is it the war on drugs? Right. Now the war on drugs undoubtedly, right? So played a huge role in the the massive spike in the number of people imprisoned. But in that sense, right, the war on drugs is more of uh, a symptom than a cause. Right? And as, as mass incarceration has become this issue of public concern in recent years, right, the conversation has been so tightly focused on the war on drugs, right, that if we, um, if we end the war on drugs, if we revise the war on drugs, right, particularly if we free um, nonviolent drug offenders, right, if we don't send nonviolent drug offenders to prison, we would end mass incarceration. Right? And this, this, I think, is, is tempting, right? It's exciting, um, but unfortunately is, is just not true, right? So this is a chart put together by um, a, uh, a think tank, a sort of non- nonpartisan think tank called the Prison Policy Initiative, right? We could spend, you know, all week unpacking this, um, but I just want to draw your attention to, to a couple of things, right? So it has, 
the first right, is to think about the significance of the war on drugs. Right? And when we look at the federal prison population, right, 211,000 people out of the more than 2 million, right? and about half of them are there for, for drug offenses. Right? So it's played a huge impact in the number of people that, that are in federal prison. Right? But we need to compare that right, with how small a slice of, of the pie that is. Right? So most incarceration happens at the state level. Right? Most people are serving time in state prisons, right? not federal prisons and not private prisons. And in state prisons, right, drug offenses are a fraction right, of the offenses of the violations that send people to prison. Right? So the war on drugs has played a really significant role, right? but it's not, it's not the determinative factor. Okay, so not crime, not profit, not the war on drugs, right? How do we get this? How do we get this sort of massive spike, right, that lasts for more than 40 years? So what I want to argue, right, is that this is a, a response to the second Reconstruction, right? That the kind of politics of, you know, hyper-policing, militarized policing, and sending more people to more prisons and keeping them there for longer, right, emerges in response to the civil rights and black power movements. Right? Now let's, let's think about this right, in, in the context of what Reconstruction itself is. Right? So, so what, was, what was the first Reconstruction right, that we talked about oh so long ago? So, so Reconstruction, right, was, was after the um, abolition of slavery, right, and was, was the kind of first real chance, right, in, in the U.S., and especially in the South, right, to have a kind of genuine democracy, right, where African Americans right, were, you know, holding office, right, earning money for, for jobs and a range of things that, that didn't exist before. And how was that undone? Yeah, Scott. Isn't that, that's kind of like um, by incarceration, right? Convict leasing and things like that occur around that time. Isn't that that's kind of what we see? Black codes, vagrancy laws. So, so, so the criminal justice system becomes one uh, one way of, of sort of undoing uh, incarceration. How else? Yeah, Katie. Sharecropping, right? The sort of unjust sort of economic relationships, right? That keep people kind of indentured to the same, uh, often the same sort of plantations that they were working on. Good. And, and what else? One, one more. Segregation and Jim Crow laws. Yeah, so, so Jim Crow laws are not just the criminal justice system, but the larger, the larger kind of isolation. Yeah. And, and what else? One more big one. Right? How, how does birth of a nation end? Um, I was going to say lynching. Yeah, right? There's a rise of this kind of, you know, terrorist, racist violence, right? By the Klan uh, and, and related groups. Right? So, so Reconstruction was this sort of major 
uh, effort, right, major experiment to kind of build democracy that becomes so threatening to some people, right, that they pursue a variety of, uh, of means, some legal and some uh, extra-legal, right, to sort of undo it, right? Okay, so how... Why do we think about, right, and last time we talked about what makes the sort of civil rights and black power period one of the second reconstruction? Obi, what do you think? Well, can you repeat the question? So, so why, why is the civil rights and black power movements, why, why should we consider them the second reconstruction? Well, this is another like, attempt to gain rights as well as equality, and then the same like uh, available to have the same resources as the rest of society, specifically uh, white people. Yeah, right. So, so, so this is the sort of time period when there's such a sort of massive uh, sort of coming together of different. Uh, social movements and different challenges to the kind of prevailing, you know, political, economic, and social order, right? That it rises to the level of, you know, reconstructing society, right? In a kind of, you know, pop, uh, top to bottom sort of way, right? And so that challenge is so significant, right? That that mass incarceration becomes the, the response, right? It's not the only response, obviously, Right? We have the kind of you know, erosion of Jim Crow. Right? We have the, the ending of kind of official right, de jure segregation. Right? We have significant you know, laws and, and protections that are passed. Right? But at the same time, we also have this really uh, incredible expansion of right, the criminal justice system right? from not just prisons but, but policing, right? as we'll see. That becomes really fundamental to sort of limiting, right, the kind of scale and scope of what the, uh, the sort of reconstruction, the second reconstruction is able to accomplish, okay? So we could think about it, right, at the national level, right? Just like when we talked about with reconstruction, we talked about, you know, federal reconstruction, right, and sort of black reconstruction, right? We think about the kind of federal response Second Reconstruction, right? Think of someone like Lyndon Johnson, right? Sort of liberal, democratic president who, you know, passes the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, right? But he also launches the war on crime, right? Now, in 1964, Johnson handily defeats a challenge from Barry Goldwater, right, the Republican candidate. And Barry Goldwater is really trying to, you know, base his campaign on punishment, right? That we need to stop these, these movements, we need to, you know, uh, respond to this sort of activism with a kind of tough, tough hand, right? And Johnson sort of, you know, takes a more kind of liberal approach, right? He wins easily, and then shortly thereafter, he launches the war on crime, right? And says that crime is such a problem, right? That we, that we need a, a massive federal investment of it, right? And, uh, to, to, uh, to respond to it, right? And part of that is about, you know, uh, toughening sentences, right? But a big piece of that, both the war on crime and then the, the Safe Streets Act that he passes three years later, right, is about um, more police, right? Not only numerically more police, but more heavily armed police, right? And this was a response to what was happening, as, as we'll get to in a minute, the response to what was happening, right, in the streets uh, of the country, 
right, where there were so many, so many sort of strong challenges right, in cities and towns around the country. Right? So we can think about sort of Johnson helps kind of lay, lay a foundation for this right, through the presidency. Right? It then continues with Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Right? Nixon right, runs in 1968, and he makes law and order the centerpiece of his campaign. Right? So he takes a lot of what Barry Goldwater was, uh, was arguing right? and, and tries to build a whole electoral platform out of it, right? that we need to take a tough, uh, tough stand against these demonstrators. Right? We need to have law and order at all costs. Right? And Nixon helps launch the kind of first wave of the war on drugs right? that sort of comes, uh, comes out of that, that spirit. Right? Reagan obviously is you know mo- most famous um, for you know his his time in the presidency right in the 1980s, but at this time he is the governor of California, right where where Nixon also sort of got his start right politically. And the fact that they both come from California, right, is significant. We'll we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Um, but Reagan, right, as governor of California takes a really tough stand against the student, uh, the student strikes that we were talking about last time, right? When sort of campuses are, uh, are protesting and demanding you know, change in curriculum and demanding ethnic studies programs, uh, when they're protesting against the war in Vietnam, right? Reagan is the first to sort of call on the police, right? Demand more and more law and order, right? So he sort of builds his national reputation out of how he responds, right, in California, the third kind of key um, national figure I want to talk about, right, is J. Edgar Hoover, right, who's the head of the FBI. Right? And as the head of the FBI, Hoover starts this thing called the counterintelligence program. Right? Now, the counterintelligence program is this kind of secret uh, police strategy right, of the FBI that initially starts in the 1950s to... Uh, to try and undermine right, sort of Communist Party, Puerto Rican independence movements. Right? But by the 1960s, right, COINTELPRO is focused forcefully and strongly against black, black uh, radicalism. Right? So in, in one of the kind of signature memos that, that launches the sort of COINTELPRO against black radicals, right, Hoover says that the purpose of the program is to, quote, uh, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize right, the activities of black nationalist organizations, their leaders, their members, their supporters. Right? It's a very clear uh, purpose right, of, of the program. Right? Now, COINTELPRO does that through a variety of means. Right? The most extreme right, happens in Chicago in 1969, right, where sort of COINTELPRO agents are part of uh, the, the murder of the leader of the Chicago Black Panther chapter, right, a guy named Fred Hampton. Right? Uh, and another member of the Illinois Black Panthers, Mark Cook, is also killed by police. Right? That's the sort of most extreme version. Right? But more significant is the, the various kind of petty, mundane ways that the FBI secretly tried to prevent organizations from coming together, right? Prevent people from, um, from doing the kind of activism that they were doing, 
right? So this is just one of, of several examples, right? This is a memo in which FBI agents are discussing sending an, uh, a story to the news media to print, right? That um, they say, right, that the, the idea is that it will help foster a split between the Black Panther Party and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, right? As the kind of two, you know, two of the leading organizations among uh, black youth at that time period. Right? And so if we just sort of get stories in the newspaper that they're fighting with each other, that they can't agree with each other, that they're insulting each other, right? that will you know, turn the public off from them, right? and maybe we'll also help them actually fight each other. Right? And these kinds of activities, right, together with more you know, overt, explicit responses from police, really did destabilize these movements, right? They, they really did contribute to, you know, a failure to come together, to a kind of infighting, right? Now, that alone doesn't give us mass incarceration, right? COINTELPRO is not, is not concerned, right, with a kind of, you know, imprisoning whole communities or something like that, right? What COINTELPRO is concerned with is destabilizing the kind of radical uh, activists, right, the sort of radical organizations that are, that are offering the kind of most forceful challenge, right, to the system, and if, if and when they sort of successfully destabilize them, right, if they successfully prevent them from, uh, from doing what they can do, then they can't actually respond to the other you know, social conditions that are happening. Right? The article we read on Tuesday talked, talked about the sort of deindustrialization right, that saw you know, African Americans particularly impacted right, by being you know, last hired, first fired, right, by being unable to you know, access... Uh, you know, proper uh, employment, right? That's what organizations like the Panthers and SNCC were organizing around, right? That's what, part of what they were fighting for, right? But instead, as they're fighting for each other, they can't respond to the larger kind of demands of the community, right? So Johnson, Nixon, Reagan, Hoover, right? they, all, they all play their part, right? But remember, most of people who are incarcerated are incarcerated at the state level, right? So the kind of federal politicians, what's happening at the federal stage is really important in kind of setting priorities, right? In, you know, providing resources. But it doesn't actually, uh, it's, it's not, that alone, right, doesn't give us mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is something that needs to be built state by state by state. So... So I want to take us uh, to California in particular, right? But before we get there, right, I, I wanted to offer what I think is a kind of counterintuitive uh, aspect, right, of the history of mass incarceration. And something that, that the readings for, the, for today really um, imply, right? That's sort of impl- implicit in the readings that we read. But that is that, that the movements and activists, right, of the Second Reconstruction were already intimately acquainted with what we might call mass incarceration, right, with, with police and with the prison system. Right? So they're already shaped by the system. And in fact, they use that to, to sort of bolster their demands. Right? So when we think about some of the kind of leading figures right, of that time period, all, all of them had records. Right? We think about, you know, particularly in the South, where the sort of laws of Jim Crow were so um, severe and, 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 and so sort of clearly stated, right? For Rosa Parks, the kind of 
you know, take her, you know, heroic stand and so on, right, on, on the bus in Montgomery, is to break the law, right? True for, for some, you know, for all of the kind of Southern civil rights activists. We talked uh, a little bit ago about Fannie Lou Hamer, right, who was arrested and beaten for trying to register to vote in Mississippi. Right? We could think about uh, Stokely Carmichael, right, one of the leading members of SNCC who, you know, was arrested... 20-something times, right? In, in his memoir, he said he always got arrested on his birthday, right? So all of his friends were saying, don't hang out with Stokely on his birthday, right? You're going to wind up in jail, right? So that, that experience of, of arrest, imprisonment, policing, right, was, was common, right? A common part of being, being an activist. True as well, right, outside the South, in the North, in the West, right? Huey Newton who goes on to found the Black Panther Party, right? It's first arrested as a juvenile, right? It's been times in, uh, in juvenile detention in California, right? And of course, right, Martin Luther King, right, who, whose arrests become, you know, a sort of symbolic foundational part of, uh, of the movement as well, right? He, he, the attention that, that his arrests bring, right, ultimately becomes so unwelcome that, that police don't want to arrest him, Right? Now, I bring all this up right, to say that because the movement was so already familiar with, with police and prisons, there was this idea that they were more powerful than that, right? that the state's you know, current arrangement wouldn't break them. Right? So that, that experience of incarceration actually becomes a sort of bolster to further activism. Right? So Martin Luther King, you know, uh, in his book, Why We Can't Wait?, Right, so famously describes going to jail as, as a badge of honor, right? as something that made African Americans, right, as he says, impatient to be free. Right? It, was, it, it was a rite of passage. Right? That kind of message, in, in, in a different way, right, gets echoed by Malcolm X, right? who right, is sort of uh, you know, arrested as a, as a young person for you know, being part of a... Um, a sort of gang, right, that, that did a series of, of robberies and sort of petty crimes like that, right? And while in prison, right, Malcolm joins the Nation of Islam, becomes this, becomes Malcolm X, right? Becomes a sort of leader and, and, and widely kind of, you know, respected, sought after, uh, you know, speaker, uh, organizer, and intellectual, right? And Malcolm X is continuously reminding his audience that he spent time in prison, Right? And says, in fact, right, that that's what America means, and right? America means prison right? for, for all of us. Right? Now, we could talk about a range of, of other different quotes like this, but, but I bring up these two in particular right, because they're often presented as opposing figures, right? that, Mal- that you know, Martin versus Malcolm, right? the American dream or, or the, you know, the American nightmare, right? King, the integrationist, and Malcolm X, the separatist. But in fact, they had a lot more uh, in common, right, than people often give them credit for, right, in their sort of visions and ideas, right? And one of the things that they had in common, right, is both using that experience of, of incarceration as a way to sort of further push people to, uh, to organize and fight for freedom, right, to, to further be part of this kind of second reconstruction movement, right? So interestingly, right, Malcolm X says, right, quote, you know, you can't be a Negro in America and not have a criminal record, Right? This is you know, his effort to sort of naturalize it at some level. Right? Part of what's so interesting here is that you totally could at that time. Right? It was very possible to be an African-American and not have a criminal record. I mean, it's possible today, right? but, it was, but it was even more possible then. But this becomes a kind of rhetorical 
move, right, to show how central, right, prison already is in the lives of working-class African-Americans. Right? So, okay, there we go. Right? So, so that experience, right, becomes a part of not only the organized activism that's happening, but also the more kind of spontaneous, um, you know, rebellions or actions that are happening, right? So we think about the period in the mid-1960s, you know, 1964 to 1968, right? It's a time period of, you know, hundreds of uprisings in cities around the country, right? We, we talked uh, a little bit about Watts we'll get, we'll, on Tuesday. We'll get, we'll get back to it in a second, right? But in Newark, New Jersey, and Detroit, Michigan, right? These kind of major uh, uprisings, but also in, you know, small towns right, around the country, Right, that cause you know millions of dollars in damage. That consistently, you know, send out the national guard in order to, you know, restore order. Right? Everything that's happening in those in the streets of this country in the mid '60s then moves into the prisons. Right in the late '60s and early '70s. Right. So the kind of hundreds of urban riots become, you know, dozens and maybe scores of prison riots. Right. Well before right we get this kind of massive spike right, in the rates of, of number of people going to prison. Right? So, okay. Watts. Right? What, what happened at Watts? <coughs> who, who was with us on Tuesday? That, yeah, Ruth. Um, uh, African-American guy was pulled over for uh, drunk driving on a motorcycle and treated um, really violently the surrounding community responded in um, with anger and uh, support against uh, how he was being treated unfairly, and that created a six-day riot that killed 34 and burned down buildings. Um, I read some more that it was mainly focused on like the white um, businesses. Right, so so Watts becomes a sort of national sort of touch point, right, of of the kind of anger of the time period, right, and in particular the sort of anger that comes from, you know, that's sort of mass deindustrialization. Right? Studies of the time show, right, most people who participated, you know, in Watts and other uprisings, were people who were either marginally employed or or unemployed, right. There was it was a sort of response to the kind of economic crises of. Uh, of black communities, right? especially urban black communities. Right? Now, the response to Watts right, was, was manifold, but one of the things that the police did right, in Los Angeles was uh, to, to say that you know, we, we need to invest more money in, in, uh, in police, we need to you know, better um, train police in terms of kind of counterinsurgency, Methods, right, and we need the the weapons and tools in order to do so. Right? So, so what do you think? What do you think was the result of that effort? Yeah, Jenny. The um, what was already happening, but more brutally. Yeah, right. So, and, and and more particularly, right. This is the origins of the SWAT team. Right. So we think about you know. I mean, when I was a kid, right, it was like shows like Cops. I don't know if it's if it's still on, right? But you know, when we see this sort of hyper hyper military response by police, right, sort of dressed in you know 
army attire, army weaponry, and so on, that, co- that comes directly out of these sorts of rebellions. Right? So, so the first response to it is we need more, um, we need more police, we need better armed, better armed police, right? And, and we need to free them to act more, um, uh, to act more violently, right? To have the tools to do so, but also to have the freedom to do so, right? And now, right, every, you know, town and, and city in the country has a SWAT team, right? One of the first kind of uses of that SWAT team, right, was in a big standoff with the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party, right, in, uh, in December of 1969, right? This was kind of their first kind of training uh, exercise, or, but, but, but in, in real life, right? So th- that kind of, you know, massive police presence, right, we might think of it as a sort of disproportionate police presence that we saw in, you know, Ferguson, Missouri, right? It begins initially, right, as, as a response to, to things like Watts, right? Okay, so, so let's focus, let's continue to think more about the sort of California context, right? Because California becomes a really interesting and I think, you know, kind of surprising um, case study here, right? After, in the decades after World War II, California tries to take the lead nationally in thinking about sort of rehabilitative approaches to prison, right? And in particular, they're thinking about um, they use something called bibliotherapy, quote unquote, right? And the idea of bibliotherapy is that you know people go to prison because they're uneducated, and so once we're in prison, we're gonna uh, well they're uneducated, and then they do something bad, right? And so once they're in prison, we're gonna educate them, right? We'll give them books, we'll have them read and write, and then we'll we'll correct them, right? This was this was the idea of sort of California um, prison officials. So, so the idea was, right, we'll, we'll, um, we'll correct them, but we're going to keep them in prison until we feel like they're corrected, right? And so, so at the same time as California does bibliotherapy, they also have indeterminate sentences, right? So what that means you could be sentenced to serve, you know, between, you know, five years and, and life in prison, right? Up, up to them to decide when you have been corrected, Okay. So what do you think happened as prisoners started to embrace bibliotherapy, right? as prisoners started to you know, read and write and have access to literacy? Thinking about the kinds of things that you, that you read for today. Yeah. Well, just becoming politically aware, and uh, like George Jackson, got, he said he met Marx and Lenin and these revolutionary authors who learned about Che Guevara while he was in prison, and that just led to their activism while being incarcerated, but then becoming acutely aware of the state they were into. They're locked down, and they're learning how to respond. Great, right? So, so people in prison use that reading and uh, access to books, right, to learn about the world, right, to respond to the world, and then they start being very critical of their conditions. Right? They start writing you know, books that... that protest the sort of violence that they experience in prison, right? George Jackson is not uh, the first to do so, right? But he becomes, I think, the sort of most uh, significant, the most famous. And so that, you know, California prison officials are like, well, that's not what we meant to do, right? And so they move relatively quickly, right? In a relatively short time period from this kind of rehabilitative 
ideal, right, that was still, you know, segregated inside prisons, that was still kind of happening in this kind of violent context, right, and say, well, that doesn't work, let's get rid of that, right? And that we can just sort of expand on the control aspects of prisons in, in response, right? And so it's this move from rehabilitating prisoners, right, to what gets called incapacitating them, right? This is, this is the, you know, uh, lock them up and throw away the key mentality. Right? We're not even going to try anything. Right? So, the I said incapacitation happens relatively quickly. Right? In 1970, there were 20,000 people in prison in California. Does anyone want to guess how how many people were imprisoned by 1990? Right? 20 years later. Yeah, Obi. Close, right? 90,000 people. Right? So in the span of 20 years, right, more than quadruples the number of people in prison. Right? Another 20 years after that, right, at its height, or not even, about 15 years after that, at its height, California has 163,000 people in prison. Right? That's more than some whole countries have, right? In their, uh, in their prison population, right? And today, it, uh, oh, here we go. Right. <laughs> today, it's, uh, it's dropped down a little bit. We can talk more uh, about that, right? But there's a massive shift, right? Now, to get there, you're not, they're not just sort of cramming people into, you know, the sort of rafters of existing prisons, right? If you're going to expand, you know, the, the sort of government's ability to incarcerate people that much, that quickly, you're going to need a whole lot of new prisons, right? So there's, you know, about 10, um, or, you know, 10 prisons, right, throughout the state in, you know, George Jackson and Angela Davis's time, right? Today there's more than, uh, well, there's 33, right? And, and more if we count, you know, the various jails, the federal prisons, and so on, right? So the, so the state of California needs to build all of these new prisons really, really quickly. Right? That becomes, right, so we think about right, the kinds of demands that you know, the Panthers are making against the state of California, right? that SNCC is making against the state of California about where and how state resources should be spent. Right? And some of that happens. Right? We, we get you know, ethnic studies programs. We get some of these right, changes to the law. Right? But we also get right this sort of massive, uh, you know, prison construction project, right? In some ways, the sort of most, you know, ambitious or unprecedented, right, prison construction in world history, right, happens in, the, in this time period. Right? Okay, so let's let's think about this from from the context of people who lived it. Right? So the Soledad brothers' case becomes a, a sort of touchstone case in a, a time period of prisoner activism, right? Soledad brothers were three, three men, right? John Clichet, Fleeta Drumgo, and George Jackson. All of them first encountered the criminal justice system as young people, right? John Clichet was 14 when he was first arrested, right? George Jackson was 15, Fleeta Drumgo was eight. Right? Eight years old, the first time that he's arrested. Right? Different you know, experiences in, you know, ju- in uh, juvenile detention, right? and then find themselves in 
in adult prisons, right, by the time they are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. Right? So George Jackson becomes, you know, the most famous. He actually was the, the, the oldest uh, of the three of them, right? He was 18 when he was in prison, right? And because he had gotten into trouble before, um, you know, sort of fights and, and burglary, right? Then in, in 1960, he and a friend tried to um, rob a gas station of $70, right? And so the judge looks at his, uh, at his rap sheet, right? And sentences him to serve one year to life in prison, right? So remember that sort of indeterminate sentencing that we were talking about, right? The idea was, well, you're, you're a bad kid, you got in trouble, and so this is what, what we need to, to correct you. Right. 1960, right? This, this is really before a lot of the kind of hallmarks of right, sort of second reconstruction come to pass. Right? So George Jackson is experiencing WAPs from San Quentin, right? from inside a prison. Right? He's seeing the rise of the Black Panther Party from inside prison. Right? But because he is you know, paying attention to the world, because he's sort of reading and writing and organizing inside prison, right? He's sort of leading, you know, classes on, you know, on um, political education, right? They're sort of re- reading books together, but also he's doing classes on, you know, martial arts with, with other prisoners. So he becomes known throughout the sort of prison system, right? So when Huey Newton goes to prison, right, everyone's telling him, we got to meet this guy, George Jackson, you gotta meet this guy, even when they're at separate at separate prisons. And so, Huey Newton helps uh, helps George Jackson get get an attorney, right? Who helps bring his his kind of plight to the world. Okay. What brings these three guys together, right, is that uh, in early 1970, right, a guard uh, shot and killed three black prisoners in the yard of the prison, right. In response to that, a uh, district attorney investigates and said it was a justifiable killing, right? And so after that, someone or someone's uh, beat up and killed a guard, right? A, a different guard, but, but widely viewed to be kind of in, in retaliation for that. Right? And so they were charged for that, um, for that killing, right? For, uh, for, the, for that guard's death. But, but what becomes so interesting, right, and, and in particular what, what Jackson's lawyer, a woman named Faye Stender, sees, right, is she's sort of blown away by reading his letters, right, and sees the, the kind of force and power of, of his statements, right, and says, well, th- this is, you know, there, there's a larger problem, right, of, of racism happening here, right, and he actually is, is such a sophisticated analyst of it. And so she helps her bring, bring his letters together, right? And this becomes, I think, a, a, certain, a certain kind of, right, kind of patient, patient zero for mass incarceration at some level, right? So when we think about the kind of problems that we see of the prison system as a whole, right, George Jackson building on the kind of larger ethos of the time period becomes one of the most sophisticated analysts of it, right? One of the people who's really able to sort of diagnose the, the problem, right? And, and raise a, a warning cry, right? So here he's talking about how right, people come to expect prison, right? It's sort of a more pessimistic 
reading of you know Martin Luther King saying it's a badge of honor, right? Jackson's not saying it, it's it's a good thing. He's just saying it becomes it becomes naturalized. Right? In his other writings, he talks about you know prisons generally and you know solitary confinement in particular as signs of uh, of fascism. Right? I mean, he was very you know stark and, and polemical in his writing. Right? But we might think about it as um, as Jackson warning about the sort of rising inequality. Right. Even if he's calling it, you know, fascism, he's saying that the prisons, solitary confinement, and the and the uh, racially disparate ways in which those those punishments are meted out, right, are grave threats to American democracy, right? Are grave threats to American society. And if we don't act now, right, we're going to have major problems on our hands. Right? So th- this is sort of Jackson's warning, right, to the country that he's writing from a prison cell. And, and mostly from uh, a version of, of sort of solitary confinement at the time. Right? That becomes tremendously inspiring to people around the world, right? but most inspiring to other people in prison. Right? So, so mo- most famously, right, in Attica, New York, right, all the way across the country, people who um, were read George Jackson, were inspired by George Jackson, when he was, when George Jackson was killed by prison guards, right, in this kind of bloody, bloody riot, right, that we can we can talk more about, they went on a fast, right, a kind of one day strike to honor him, right, and this so kind of terrified the guards in response to the kind of uh, already existing kind of tensions at the prison, right, and three weeks later it kind of burst into this, you know, major prison riot. Right. You could think of it in some ways as the sort of, you know, what happened at Watts, right, moving to prison, right? The Attica Rebellion was four-day-long uh, process where prisoners kind of built their own, you know, commune, right, inside of the prison, right? They're sort of making decisions democratically and so on, right, until the, um, the governor of New York at the time, Nelson Rockefeller, right, sends some state troopers and kills, you know, 43 people, right, prisoners and guards alike, but but the kind of origins of Attica are kind of remembering George Jackson, right? And this is happening in in, in prisons around the country, right? People start, you know, trying to write their own books, right? People start writing newsletters. People start, you know, taking classes and teaching each other things, right? Sort of inspired by his his version of um, of kind of dignity and autonomy and and obstinacy, right? And militancy inside a prison. Right now, this—it's not just other kind of activists who are inspired by George Jackson. Right? The government also has a response to to Jackson right? and to the kinds of movements that he he created, right? And it's one that continues to uh, fashion prison policy today, right? So this is a picture of a guy named Hugo Pennell, who was a uh, a comrade of Jackson's, right? A contemporary of Jackson's, and after. Um, Jackson was killed in this kind of bloody uprising attempt, right? Pennell was charged in it as well. Uh, he was um, got another life sentence, right, in response. And they put him in solitary confinement for the next 40-plus years, right? He got out of solitary confinement in, in August, and uh, two days later was, was killed by two white prisoners, right, in... in 
an episode, right? That that's sort of still under investigation, still still very confusing, right? But um, but Pennell becomes this sort of right proof of the, of the sort of punishment of George Jackson, right? The ways that his his kind of symbolism continues to shape prison policy, right? And it's not just people who who know Jackson, right? We talked or who knew Jackson. We talked about all the kind of prisons that, that uh, California had to build, right, in order to sustain this, this new policy of mass incarceration, right? And one of the most austere and punishing of them was this prison at Pelican Bay, right, where people are in, you know, nonstop, constant lockdown, right? One of the things that has got people sent to Pelican Bay is for having copies of George Jackson's books, right, in their cell. For having you know pictures of Jackson uh, in, in their cell, okay? and so the kind of fear of association, even for guys who you know were born after Jackson was killed, right, becomes so powerful that it was you know up until very recently is still very punished in, in prison. Right? And when California officials had discussions to build Pelican Bay in the 80s, right, and they decided they wanted to build what was new at the time, right, what was called a super maximum security facility, right, because before that point, maximum security was the highest form of, uh, of, of security, right, of, of prison that existed, right? Pelican Bay sort of inaugurates this new, even more uh, isolating prison, right? And the rationale that prison officials give is that they want to prevent another George Jackson, right? So they want to keep people as... You know, isolated as possible, right? in, in as much sort of sensory deprivation as possible. So much so, right, that this becomes the exercise yard, right, where people are sort of released, you know, on their own for you know thirty to sixty minutes every one or two days. Right? Now, it's it's a sort of constant back and forth, right, in in this process of mass incarceration, right. It's not just Right, the Jackson inspired people to take activism uh, in his day. Right, also inspired the the state to to take their own kind of action. Right, that sort of came back around. Right, and in the last you know five years, it was prisoners at Pelican Bay who actually launched a series of you know hunger strikes and lawsuits against the state of California for this kind of indefinite solitary confinement. Right. And it was led by, by these men, right, and not all of whom had spent more than 10 years in isolation, most of whom had spent more than 20 years in isolation. And the hunger strikes that they organized at their height had about 30,000 people participating, right, up and down the state. So we think about the, you know, part of what's remarkable about that, right, is that here are people who can't sit in the same room together, right, and are able to kind of coordinate a demonstration that that uh, grips the entire state's prison system. Right? Think as well, right? Thirty thousand people participated in in that strike in 2013. Right? That's more people than California incarcerated right, at the time George Jackson was alive. So those kind of policies of mass incarceration continue to sort of reverberate right through and in connection to the period of the Second Reconstruction. Right? So I want to close with this. Right? George Jackson, I think, was a symbol of his day. Right? He became a kind of symbol of the kind of injustices that, that people faced 
right? And, and in particular, a, a symbol of, as a, a warning, right, of what kind of injustices would be in store, right, if we didn't take the, the problems of prison seriously. Right? He wasn't talking about mass incarceration, right? That, that term didn't exist. Right? The problem of incarceration, right, was, was his, his problem, right? And the more that we expand prisons, the more that we expand punishment, the more unequal our society is going to be. And so Jackson becomes this kind of, um, you know, prophetic voice in some ways, right? Taking the ideas and energy of the Second Reconstruction, right, and applying them to criminal justice, right? And seeing the realm of criminal justice as this sort of next horizon, right, of, of how right, sort of, uh, racism and inequality were going to continue. Right? And so in that sense, right, in the kind of symbolic, you know, warning that I think Jackson offers... Right? We can think of him as a kind of Michael Brown of his day. Right? So why, why do I say that? Right? Who, who's Michael Brown? Kaylee. Yeah, right. So, his, so his death by police in Ferguson was such a kind of flashpoint for um, for the rise of of Black Lives Matter, right? And his kind of image, his symbol became proof of what uh, of the problem of, of policing, right? Good. Yeah, Shakira, are we going to add to that? Oh, I was just trying. I was just. I couldn't hear her, so I was trying to figure out which case that was. Yeah. Because there's so many of them. Yeah, right? So, so again, right, we could think about kind of Jackson's warning, right, the ways that sort of Angela Davis kind of re, um, re-articulates that warning in the readings that we did for today, right? That becomes a kind of, you know, basis for, for Black Lives Matter, right, for the kind of a major kind of social movement eruption in the last couple of years, right? Okay. Um, questions, comments, thoughts? Did you explain which which um, case this was? Because I know there was um, there was someone walking. It wasn't the one with the hood. So, so that was that Trayvon Martin, right? Who who had the hoodie. Uh, um, uh, was was sort of attacked in, in Florida, right? Michael Brown was. Um, the uh, 18-year-old in Ferguson, Mississippi, right, who is um, stopped by Officer Darren Wilson, right, and uh, and in the course of an altercation, right, the police officer uh, shot him and and killed him, right. But but there was a reason why Brown's case in particular became such a, a sort of touchstone, right. Everything help us out. Why why did Michael Brown's case become even more uh, kind of big news than, than some of the others at, at the time period. I think it's just from the sheer fact that it was so blatant, whereas a lot of times when we see these murders, um, they're able to get away with it because they have like, points of information to the sort of public. And I think with Darren Wilson, um, because Mike Brown was left in, left in the street for four and a half hours before he was there, the fact that it was so blatant and so overt and racist, people were just like, they're not going to let and I think that it was, you could often use the metaphor of like, like kind of a pot. You put a lot of water in it, it starts to boil a lot, and then just like, burst. I think Mike Brown did that for a lot of folks. Something that people also talk about is that Mike Brown could have been somebody else. But the fact that his case 
blood was still playing for black kids up in the streets, and then the significance of like hands up, don't shoot, um, and all those like signifiers, I think really catalyzed a lot of what happened. Because in Ferguson, like after my brother was murdered, people started to look into what was going on, and Ferguson itself, like the construction of like, what was going on in that city, was insane. The policing um, of the community, the like, ratio of policing to the community members was astronomical. Yeah, good. Kaylee? I think it was just like she said it was just the point of people have been dealing with the injustices and the profiling and the racial um, the racial profiling for so long and then his um, murder, his massacre was completely it was just like the boiling point. It was where people were like, No, we're done. Yeah, right. So, so, so Michael Brown's gateway became the kind of um, the the tipping point, right? The sort of line in, uh, in the sand, right? That, um, that that sparked a movement. Good. Yeah. Also, that. like the fact that it was was not indicted, even yeah. after there was such blatant evidence as to like that he did murder Michael Brown, and that like there was no like excessive force was used, and that there was like not a proper protocol. People really just realized that like this whole system is 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 failing, and it has been failing. But the, everything that we've been saying up until that point was then, like, case in point with this. You know, he wasn't indicted even after everything that has been said and then found out about yeah, right. So, so part of the reason why I think that, um, well, so right, so the the lack of any kind of repercussions for for Darren Wilson, right, became part of the the mobilization, right, about why Michael Brown's case became such a touch point, touchstone. Um, although, right, a number of other, you know, I mean, George Zimmerman who killed Trayvon Martin uh, was indicted, but not. Uh, convicted, right? A number of other police officers are um, have killed African Americans have not been indicted. But but part of what what Aretha was saying before that I want to draw out, right, is is how blatant it was at the time in the sense of that Michael Brown was sort of left there for for four and a half hours, right, just uh, after he was shot, just left in the streets, right? and also how blatant it was afterwards, right, where the kind of you know, interviews with Darren Wilson where he describes Mike Brown as, you know, a demon and a thug and just uses this really, you know, explicitly kind of racist um, images, right, to describe this 18-year-old, right? And that also got kind of echoed in, you know, New York Times ran a kind of profile of Michael Brown afterwards that said, you know, he was no angel, right? Uh, It became a lot about, like, that he got into trouble, right? And there was some, you know, uh, discussion, like, did he, you know, rob a convenience store or steal something from a convenience store before, you know, earlier in the day before this happened, right? So everything became about his kind of character, right, and, and his low, his sort of low character, so to speak, right? All of that has really, you know, significant kind of parallels to what happens with George Jackson, right? When George Jackson is killed, right, in, in the yard of San Quentin, right? Prison guards come out, they make sure he's dead, they handcuff him, and they leave him there for four hours. Right? In, in both cases, right, they're sort of trying to send a message, right, to, to other people who are observing, or at least people take it that way, right? Sort of, why else would you leave, leave someone, right, on the ground in the sun for so long, right? Now, in the case of George Jackson, who gets that message is the other people in prison. Right? It's not it's not a kind of national message right, in that moment, right? Whereas Michael Brown right becomes a real whole message for for you know the entire city of Ferguson, right? For the entire country, right? Maybe even for the entire world. Right? But in both cases, right, what I think that each show right is how significant 
right? Their, their kind of lives are, right? Where what's happening in Ferguson isn't just in Ferguson, right? What's happening in San Quentin, right, isn't just in San Quentin, right? These are the kinds of, you know, violations or violence, forms of violence that are, um, you know, national and international in implications, right? And that very same issue, right, of, you know, debating someone's character as a way to, to say, well, like, did he deserve this in some way, right? Did he invite this on, right? That becomes part of the, the kind of dominant narrative in some way, right? Was the exact conversation with Jackson, right? You had a lot of people who were inspired by him who are saying, right, here's this hero, here's this martyr, right? But you have, you know, Governor Reagan writing, you know, op-eds you know, a week later saying, you know, George Jackson was a thug and a, you know, gangster, and if we don't deal with this, you know, with these, you know, problem people, right, we are all going to be prisoners, right? And the we in question, right, is very significant, right, because it's clearly, it's clearly not about George Jackson, right? It's clearly not about the kinds of, you know, communities that George Jackson comes from, right? And so this idea, right, about sort of what, both that these deaths happen, right, but then what these deaths mean, Right? continue to show right, the kind of um, you know, reverberations of mass incarceration not only as, as policy, right, but also as a matter of kind of discourse, right? as the ways that we make sense of, uh, of kind of human life in our society. Right? Okay, uh, any, uh, any more clothes? Yeah, Scott. Is there still restrictions on what type of literature prisoners can read? I know I read an article about Chris Hedges, the journalist, and he had to sneak uh, the people's history of the United States into one of the prisons he was teaching on. Is that still? Yeah. So, so, so are, are there still restrictions on the kind of literature people receive? I mean, you know, it depends on, on the prison, right? Um, I think all prisons have some, you know, give themselves the authority to determine what people can and can't access, right? Um, so... In that sense, yes, there are still restrictions, right? But their enforcement is, um, is somewhat idiosyncratic, right? Because it depends on who's in the mailroom that day or, you know, the kinds of things that, that they want to um, fight over, right? So I think you have lots of examples of books being denied or articles being denied. Um, but, you know, sometimes people can get them later or they get overturned, right? I think um, because of the hunger strikes and activism at Pelican Bay, people have been able to get a lot more literature now, right? People sort of, that their kind of activism was able to sort of in, increase some of their, their rights, right? But, you know, the, the changes vary from institution to institution. Some places don't allow hardcover books just because, right? It doesn't matter the content of the book. If it's hardcover, you can't, you can't send it in, right? When I, I mentioned on Tuesday that I, I just um, spoke to a, a class at, uh, at Monroe, um, uh, prison, right, not far from here. And when I mentioned George Jackson, someone left the room, went to the library, and came back with a copy of Soledad Brother to show everyone there. Right. So I, I think the 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 variation, right, is is quite is quite wide. Yeah, Dan, you have your hand up. Uh, other other questions. <laughs> Okay, so what we're going to do next time, right, is sort of think about this um, connection, right, between uh, prisons and cities from the other side, right? Today we're talking a lot about 
how what that looks like, what that means from the place of prison. Right. Next time we'll talk about what that means in terms of cities, right, and how the kind of program for you know addressing racial and economic inequality, right, is is one that's going to be based in cities, but still responding to the sort of larger uh, larger climate, right, of mass incarceration. Okay. Thanks, y'all.